Welcome, a listener, to another episode of Spam, 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 Humbug, or rather a throwback to two quite old episodes of the podcast. I didn't have time to put together another reading of Through the Moongate this week, nor did I have time to hold another recording session with the podcast crew. So instead, we are diving back into the archives, and what I've done is I've actually spliced together two different episodes from the very beginning of the podcast's run. The first, the the main portion of this episode is a discussion about Ultima 5. And it's very obvious that it was the early days of the podcast. The audio is just so insanely rough to listen to now. Some of the participants were not doing anything about their background noise. It was, it was a rough start, definitely. Wow, listening to it again is just, makes me glad for the equipment I have now. I'll put it that way. But finishing up the episode is actually an excerpt of the audio from episode 9, which is a little dramatic reading that was put together by Boolean Dragon with uh, Linguistic Dragon doing most of the voice work. It is about the fall of Astaroth, one of the Shadow Lords, and it is a fantastic little bit of Ultima fanfic in audio form. So, Even if the first hour or so of discussion in this episode is a bit rough for you, be sure to catch that. It's a gem. And of course, as always, the podcast is brought to you by our Patreon backers. Thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and the Codex by that means. You can join that crew for yourself at patreon.com slash ultimacodex. And as always, a hearty thank you to our co-producers. Seth, Golden Flame, Dominic, Violation, Helgriff, Gronk, Pascal, and Thorwan. All right, that's enough for me. Let's get on with the show. <laughs> so... <laughs> Ultima 5, Warriors of Destiny, what is it? Well, it's the fifth uh, entry in the Ultima series, obviously. The fifth numbered entry as well. Um, I think it would be sixth if you actually count Mount Drash uh, at all, which I don't know if anyone does, but there it is. Um, (coughs) What's it about? I mean, it's set um, many, many years after the quest of the Avatar had completed. Uh, the, The Avatar finds himself drawn back into a very different Britannia, um, one in which Lord British has gone missing during an expedition to the Underworld and left uh, his then-close confidant, Lord Blackthorn, in charge. But of course, Blackthorn has become corrupted by the influence of the malevolent Shadow Lords. He's implemented a very Uh, He's twisted the virtues, rather, into a very harsh system of laws with which the land is governed. Many of the Avatar's companions have been driven into hiding. Um, Sort of like a a little bit of a French resistance kind of thing going on there, I guess. And yes, this is the game that the Avatar and the player find themselves thrust into. um, And it goes from there. So, looking, I guess, a little bit first at the creation and design of Ultima V. Um... What are, I mean, I just, you know, mentioned the French Revolution there, and I don't know, or the French, sorry, resistance, World War II, um, but, you know, what are some of the influences that it seems Origin Systems drew on for inspiration when creating Ultima V? 
Who wants first kick at that? I got Sanctimonia waving his hand there a little bit, so go ahead. Yeah, I'd probably say one of the strongest influences um, for Ultima 5 was actually its predecessor, Ultima 4. Um, you know, what they did in Ultima 4 was so profound with respect to other role-playing games at the time and the virtues uh, that they wanted to sort of continue, you know, ride, <laughs> ride the coattails of their previous success, but give it a twist. And, you know, they literally gave it a twist by uh, perverting the virtues. I guess there is uh, an element of that too, right? I mean, they had just introduced the eight virtues with Ultima 4, and now all of a sudden, here we are um, seeing them in Ultima 5 mutated and codified into a series of laws that are, you know, quite reprehensible and horrifying uh, on on the face of it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, obviously there is sort of a a continuation of theme there, and two, I mean, if I recall correct, you know, like you're, you do start to see the virtues kind of being enacted in the world a little bit, right? Because, you know, when you have a, the Shadow Lord in one of the towns, the people there start acting contrary to the virtue of that town, as I recall. So people will lie to you in Moonglow until the Shadow Lord goes away and then they'll tell you the truth again. All right, Adam. Um, yeah, I don't think that, uh, whichever, I don't think that they actually, um, mm-hmm. I don't think that the, the coding is precise enough that they're really acting opposite the town's virtue. If the Shadow Lord of Falsehood is there, they will lie. It doesn't matter which town it is. If the Shadowhood of Cowardice is there, they run away from you, regardless of which town it is, uh, etc. Yeah, fair Although enough. Although it's possible that we need to standardize on one version because it's been ported and I don't know what kinds of changes. So, Yeah, that's true, too. I mean, it was ported to... It was the last Ultima, really, to be ported to a number of different platforms. Yeah, I think the standard version now that people generally play when they run emulators is uh, the DOS version, IBM PC version. I think it has the, the best graphics of all the ones that were released. Yeah, That's you may the one be that right. I grew up with. Um, indeed. Um, <clears throat> and I guess, too, yeah, I mean, Adam, you're right, too, in that, you know, the ver- uh, the Shadow Lords, they don't represent, um, you know, perversions of any particular virtue, or uh, nor do they represent, you know, the perversion of virtue in the overarching sense. Like, you know, there are the three Shadow Lords, and they directly oppose the principles more than anything else, right? Truth, love, That is correct. So, all right. Um, but, you know, what are, what are some of the other things that people had, uh, had thrown out here? Uh, someone wrote Tolkien. So who, who contributed Absolutely. the Tolkien suggestion? Oh, I did. I mean, my goodness. Um, story-wise, of course, I, it, I didn't read Tolkien or read Lord of the Rings anyway until shortly before the films were going to be made and I realized, oh, I better read this thing. So... Having grown up playing Ultima Five, imagine my surprise. I'm reading this like, hey, wait a minute. Wait, Ring Wraiths? What? Shadow Lords? <laughs> There's the, all of the imagery and, and those sort of situations just totally lifted from Tolkien, um, but remixed and reimagined into something new. So, you know, Gary, he likes to borrow, but, but uh, he, he definitely created something interesting there with, with what Tolkien put out. Three shards for mortal men doomed to die. <laughs> yes. And, and you've even got the, the sort of corrupted king, like King Theoden, in Blackthorn. Yes, albeit I don't think you get to draw him out as poison from a wound no. so much. So I just pulled down uh, the official book of Ultima, 
to see what it has to say about sources uh, for things that T stole. And one thing that I had forgotten that's interesting is that uh, this at least asserts, remember that Ultima 5 is the first one to introduce the language of magic, all of the, the syllables A to Z that we're used to. This evidently was inspired by Narnia. Okay. Hmm. Gosh, I read Narnia so darn long ago, and they don't really touch on that in the movies either, so I'm going to have to go back and, and think how that could be, unless someone's got Narnia, like, really fresh in mind, because I don't really Yeah, I, I, um, I know the Narnia books like the back of my hand, and I'm admittedly not quite seeing the connection at the moment. It, it's quite simply that there was a language of magic, and he wanted to formalize a language of magic for Ultima Moore, which uh, I guess okay. mostly might be, like... The uh, magician's nephew creation I'm thinking, of Narnia. I'm thinking, thing. I'm thinking more along the lines of the stone table in uh, *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, because it, when Aslan is explaining the deep magic, he, um, I think the White Witch. I don't remember whether it's him or the White Witch, but one of the two of them explains how it's written in letters uh, as deep as a spear is long on the stone table itself. So I don't know. Maybe that's what he was going for. Oh, maybe, because, yeah, there is all of those. Yeah, the the old inscriptions. Or or even just, you know, I mean, the deep magic within Tolkien, um, or within Lewis's mythos, means something a little bit different than just, you know, rote spellcasting. But, I mean, obviously, you know, it is it introduces the concept of of magic as being a thing which is written, and maybe that's part of what goes into it as well, so... Oh, yeah, and there's also um, the spell book in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader with a series of spells, and um, um, I recall I recall a big deal being made about the writing in it. Um, so another potential influence there. Yeah, that I could see that more. Huh. Well, that's an interesting one, Lewis. What else does it yeah, say so- in there? Does it list anything else in there, Adam? Oh. No, it's it's uh, surprisingly brief in real world influences. It goes on to talk about. Uh, how they wanted to make the people more like real living people, which was essentially the introduction of the scheduling system, and then it goes on to the trials and tribulations of actually trying to make it and get it out the door on time. Fair enough. Uh, Adric, did you have something you wanted to add there? Yeah, you know, something that just occurred to me is there's a touch of journey to the center of the earth in following Lord British's footsteps down the waterfall and down into the underworld. That's true, too. Especially because the underworld is like, you know... Still one of the ultimate dungeon delves. <laughs> yeah, that also reflects uh, one of the mechanics in Ultima 3, where you would actually uh, enter Sosaria uh, by going through a whirlpool in the ocean. Well, that's right. Yeah, you have to... Uh... Yeah, I remember that. I think at one point I actually stole that for... Uh... <laughs> stole that for when I was still writing the plot for Lost Sosaria. Um, as, you know, like another way of entering the abyss. But, although, wasn't there a way to enter the abyss via, via Whirlpool? Was that in Ultima 5? Yeah. In Ultima 5, you could Whirlpool and you wound up next to Captain John, or you could go down through the dungeons. In 3, right. it was the, the it way was. to get the only way to get to Ambrosia. Right, that's what it was. Cool. Yeah, I'm, um, yeah, I'm sorry, I said, I said to sorry, I meant Ambrosia. That's all good. Um, Cool. And yeah, I mean the the other influence that was you know penciled in within the notes here was it was Robin Hood, which I guess kind of also does come into it, right? There's a uh, 
Well, maybe we'll fix it in post. I don't know. But yeah, there is kind of a Robin Hood-esque thing, too, because, you know, you are leading your little ragtag band uh, through the wilds of Britannia to undo the damage caused by this corrupt regent, you know, who is left in charge of the land by the good king, who's, of course, gone off to whatever task he happens to be pursuing. Uh, so I can certainly see something there. Oh, goodness. And the well, this is now going to be officially more fun to edit in post, because the furnace just decided to kick on. Thank you, furnace. I love you. <sighs> it's a good thing Audacity has, you know, actually a really decent noise reduction algorithm. Really happy about that. Moving on, then, I guess. Um... <clears throat> We mentioned the NPC schedules there just beforehand. So yeah, what were uh, and I, you know that does invite the the broader question of you know what were some of the significant changes in game design in the design of an Ultima apparent in Ultima Five as compared to earlier entries in the series. Who wants to take first stab at that one? Okay, linguistic. Go ahead. Uh, well, the NPC schedules have already been mentioned, and um, I. I had a session of the game yesterday, um, working on a post about, um, that said session at the moment. Um, but, uh, as far as the NPC scheduling goes, it, it really does bring about a new sense of character to the NPCs, even though there's just little pixelated blocky characters. Um, the thing that stuck out to me was, um, I, uh, Stormcrow, I think it was the name of it, the lighthouse to the south of Minoc. And it's, you know, a married couple that runs it. And you see the wife up in the tower during the daytime and the husband at night. And I remember walking out of the lighthouse just when they're kind of passing the torch, kind of going by each other. And they take the time to eat together before they go their separate ways. And one of them goes to sleep and the other one goes up to the tower. And it just kind of gives a little touch of character to those two people in the lighthouse just by where they go and how they're scheduled in relation to each other as they pass by. Yeah, that's cute. I admit I actually never saw them have dinner together. So, I think it also had a rather profound effect on the way the player had to uh, uh, force himself to change their behavior. Um, you know, Because when a shopkeeper closed his shop, he would be in his bed. Um, so it really limited the amount of resources that were made available to you uh, based on the time of day. Um, so that would, that would just really dr dramatically change the way the player was forced to play the game based on the time of day. Not to mention the, you know, the limited visibility due to the day-night cycles. Right, and the um, limited availability of some uh, NPCs that gave out essential clues, like... Um the sleepwalking mage that gives out one of the words of power who's only up for a couple hours a day. Right. Or even something basic like food. You know, try, and, try and find food at 11 p.m. in Britannia. <laughs> and of course, there was nothing quite like attacking someone while they were sleeping in their bed and seeing the text murdered in, in the log. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, it's a little hard to, to pass it off as, you know, well, they started it. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was really upset when I attacked Blackthorn in bed, and it, it did not say murdered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that could, didn't could work out for me. Could you kill him by that means? You could not. I was hoping so much. Instead, I think I probably got killed. Okay, because I remember with Ultima Six, that was the bug with Lord British. He was otherwise invulnerable, but if you took a glass sword to him while he was in bed, it was... Um, and what had happened there was, you know, they, to depict 
all sleeping NPCs. They actually just had like one um, generic NPC, I guess. So, something to that effect. They had one generic NPC, and all he did was, you know, he was the sleeping NPC, and everybody who went to sleep, um, they kind they got sort of transformed into this, I think is about how it worked. Anyways, the point was, um, he was no longer invulnerable Lord British. The game kind of swapped in this standby uh, for the duration of his sleep, and then swapped him back in when he woke up. The end result being that, you know, you could kill him in his bed. Um, but yeah, but did you oh, really on, kill okay, him uh, then? Yeah, yeah, because he wouldn't swap back in in the morning. Like, he'd, just, he'd be dead. <laughs> And you could find the stuff on his body. That was the weird thing. <laughs> okay, that's conclusive. So. I actually think it's a little <laughs> suspicious that pretty much in every Ultima there was always one way to kill Lord British, despite how much effort apparently Richard Garriott put into preventing people from killing him. I think there may have been yeah. something deeper going on, like perhaps the least paid programmer always working it in intentionally as an Easter egg. Maybe. I mean, a lot of it was... well. Certainly with Ultima 6, it was all exploit-based. You know, it, it was the fact that, that there was that substitution, right, that happened there that enabled you to do it. Um, by the time of Ultima 7, certainly it had become a running gag. Uh, you know, but uh, I don't know. Golden Flame, did you have something you wanted to chip in there? Um, not on the subject of the many deaths of Lord British, but uh, when you were asking about what are the... Uh, new incremental or evolutionary changes that Ultima 5 brought to the table. Um, yeah, totally. We talked about uh, conversations already, uh, or, or we talked about schedules and uh, talked to people and indirectly alluded to the fact that their conversations could change depending on time of day, and just in general that they were a lot deeper than Ultima 4's. Ultima 4, it was the rare NPC that responded to more than one or two keywords beyond name, job, health, buy. Um but uh, and also along the lines of schedules, there was, as was mentioned, but not directly brought up in this context, the, the day-night cycle itself. Um, True. I'm not sure how many games were doing that by that point. Uh, I know some, ha you know, um, Might and Magic 2 had one. It just didn't mean anything. Um, Circles of Magic got added. Not just the words, but dividing the spells up into leveled circles. This was the game that introduced that. Uh, or rather, maybe you could say brought it back from Ultima 3, which kind of did it, where each you needed to be a, uh, a little better with your stat before you could cast the next lettered spell in your section. Um, but 5 is really the one that introduced what a lot of people consider to be one of the hallmarks of the Ultima series. 5 was the one that finally added interactivity with the world. That's true, too. That was, uh, and that was another thing that we had sketched down on the list, was, you know, the fact that it did, it had... Um... You know, and I mean, ultimately, that that was a feature that got enhanced with each additional game. But yeah, this was the first one where you could really, oh, hey, I can see a thing, and I can manipulate it, which did add uh, a ton more depth to the experience of navigating Britannia. Um, just pause for a minute here, because I see we've had uh, another one join in. I see Gridilla Dragon has just popped in. Uh, I hope I didn't butcher that pronunciation too, too terribly much there, man. Hang on, let me just, uh... but, uh... hello! If you want to say hi, come on. <laughs> Uh-oh, we're having some mic difficulties, I think, here. Okay, well, we'll work that out. Um, yeah, because... Oh, we got him? Maybe, maybe. Um, and then, of course, the size of the world was another big thing that changed within the game, too. I mean, 
it kind of it, they, they always seem to you know find ways to increase the, uh, the the size of the world with each. There we go. I mean, if you want to speak well, to that, by all means, go ahead. Uh, well, it, you said that they increased the size of the world with each game, but for me, five was the biggest. It only got smaller after five. Absolutely. And that's pri- primarily a factor of switching from uh, two-scale to single-scale maps. But 5 yeah. not only had the largest Britannia, but it also had the Underworld, which was huge. So, for my money, 5 is the biggest Ultima. Yeah, and I mean, definitely if you do factor in the size and scale of the dungeons, um, <laughs> yeah, I think 5 easily comes away as, you know, probably... You're, you're going to explore more there than anywhere. Um, not to mention the actual, the actual 3D dungeons, uh, in, unlike Ultima 4, actually contained individual rooms at intersections and such. So there, there were t- multiple layers to, to how it revealed its game world. Yeah, the dungeons were definitely much more complex. They weren't just, you know, hallways that bent oddly. Um, you know, the dungeons now had, you know, sort of a definite purposeful design to them that included, as you say, rooms and... Unless you're wandering ah, the Despise. Well, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Despise would be the one off there. Um, and then, but then just that whole underworld concept, just even the, 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 the idea of, you know, this one vast dungeon underpinning the entirety of the world. Um, I don't think it's been attempted in too, too many games that have followed. I, I mean, certainly the idea appears often enough in, you know, fantasy fiction. Um, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, for example, certainly has the, uh, what are they called? The Underdark, I think, is the, the one that pops up in like the Forgotten Realms setting, at least. Um, but I can't think of too too many other games that have really um, dived in and attempted to implement something like this grand continent-spanning mega dungeon that exists under all of the other smaller dungeons um, that that you know the land is built upon or the land is uh, peppered with. If I'm wrong, please cite me a title. I'd actually care to check that out. Well, I, I could be wrong about this, but I think the Underworld was actually the same size as far as its dimensions and tiles as the Overworld. Was that the it case? Was. Okay. It's almost like the oceans became mountains to block you in. Yeah, it's a complete second map. Game. Yeah, it is uh, a totally separate map. Um, Golden Flame just shot something out in chat there regarding the zine games, and I'm trying to... <sighs> the Might and Magic. Maybe, maybe some of the Might and Magics. I mean, the zine games were kind of weird in that I, I don't recall there being a dungeon that kind of joined all the other dungeons together, um, but the zine games were kind of weird in that, you know, you had certain dungeons that would lead, if you had both zine games co-installed. I mean, nowadays it's trivial. You just you go to GOG and get World of Zine, and that's got four and five. But you know, I remember like buying four and then saving up my allowance for a while, and then buying five later. And you know, so I'd been playing four for a while, um, and then I got five, and I co-installed it with four, and that was actually a little bit tricky under DOS to actually make that work properly. Um, but then, yeah, if you you know. As I kept playing through 4, uh, there were certain dungeons where, yeah, if you went all the way to the bottom, you came out on the other side of the world. Of course, the world 
within the zine mythos was a flat disc, right? It was just a flat rectangular disc, um, a planet seed, if you will, within the larger mythology of the series. So, you know, that worked. Um, not really the same as in Underworld, because, you know, here was the other side of the disc. It still had a sky, it still had, um, you know, plants, trees, towns, everything. Um, although it was the dark side of the disc, you know, it was only one side that was really sun-facing. And I'm trying to think, was there a day-night cycle in that game? I'm having a hard time recalling now. Ah. I never actually played them, I just knew that they had the double-sided uh, feature, so... Yeah, and I mean, you know, to be fair, that was actually a really cool thing, and I would love to see some other developer, you know, take on the challenge of releasing a game, and then months later releasing a game that was both totally playable as a standalone title, but also a complete expansion to both the story and world of the predecessor game. Uh, I can't, uh, I can't think of any other series that has attempted that. There was some very brief discussion on the Ultima Codex about Underworld Ascendant and Shroud of the Avatar when news first broke that there was going to be some sort of connection between the two, that they may have in fact uh, been planning to do that. Unfortunately, that turned out not to be the case. Yeah, it did. It was, it was briefly exciting, but it, it seems more that the, the sharing there will be on the level of, you know, story and lore. It's not like... Uh, I don't even know if we'd be able to move characters between the games. Um, although, who knows? It's early still. All right. What else do we mention here? Uh, oh, yeah. Someone someone put on the list um, simplification of classes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to speak to that a little bit there. Well, just a, one of the things that stands out to me in Ultima Five versus other uh, RPGs... I, I don't play so much of Four, but... Gathering from, you know, some of the some of the books that have come out, and just playing other games and tabletop games, is that the class system is really simple compared to those other games. It's broken down just to you know you've got your fighter, your thief type character, and your mage. They may have reduced it instead of having eight classes for the eight virtues to three classes for the three principles. That makes sense. It, it, yeah, that may have come. come. Yeah. Oh, go on. It was. Uh, <laughs> if, <laughs> I felt a little bit ripped off actually because. In the Book of Lore, you read that opening story of how Lord British came to Sosaria and he met Shamano, and Shamano hurts himself, but then casts Manny on himself. Well, in Ultima Five, Shamano isn't casting any spells because he's a fighter. <laughs> yeah, they did kind of bump the companions between classes a bit there too, and um, that was always a weird one of Shamano, the ranger who is now a fighter. Um, it, it may have Trino been becoming one of the biggest badasses. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I shall humbly pound you into the dirt. <laughs> uh, but you know, too, like I wonder if a lot of that maybe came about for technical reasons too. Like I can remember talking with Bill Randolph, uh, and this about Ultimate Nine. But you know. Um, Throughout the course of that development, and throughout the course of you know the discussion I had with him, he kept talking about how um, their biggest hurdle was the fact that they just they were always having to trade off, um, or always having to you know sort of deal with this tension between the features that they wanted to include and the variables and information that they were able to actually support. 
within the object model, within you know, within the Windows environment that they were working in at the time. Um, and you know, so he just he mentioned that you know, um, even something like you know, uh, object persistence, right? You know, like if I if I walk up uh, to one of the barrels in the game and I smash it. Well, now I've created a really big problem for the programmers because I've taken one 3D object and I've turned it into about four, okay? And then I decide to be a real jerk and I take each of those four pieces and I move them around, okay? So now I've turned one 3D object into four. I've moved them uh, around. So the game now has to keep track of four times the number of 3D objects that it had to keep track of previously. Um, <clears throat> save their state, save their positions, make sure that if I come back to that area, I still see the pieces of barrel that I'm expecting to see there. Um, you know, like that took a lot for them to implement. And, you know, as a result, they didn't necessarily have the ability to, um, to, to save, you know, other pieces of the world state that would be necessary to allow for NPC schedules, right? And I mean, you know, that was on... 1999 level hardware, I can only imagine that um, adding something as complex as day-night cycles and NPC scheduling logic in the late 80s <laughs> probably uh, severely limited other aspects of Ultima 5's development. Yeah, it's a shame that when 3D was in its infancy that they didn't realize that the depth of mechanics and the complexity of the game that they'd created, you know, really up to Ultima 7, uh, that they were just, you know, going to be unable to translate that same level of detail into 3D. Uh, because what they ended up doing by moving to 3D was actually, as you mentioned, sacrificing those elements, which is a shame because for me, that's, that's really what Ultima is about. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, so I do want to kind of keep this moving along. So, um, Brief discussion of, I guess, the, the feelies that were included in the Ultima 5 game box. Any thoughts there? Well, I... Because you I know what? I actually a... never had a box copy of Ultima 5. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, <laughs> as we all grab our boxes. <laughs> um, I, I mentioned uh, the, the journal, you know, accounting of Lord British's disappearance into the underworld because um, your discussion a few episodes ago with yourself about maps and, and game maps... Uh, made me think of this as it's another kind of map. You're following these instructions landmark by landmark into the underworld and you can see it. Now, oh, there are those mountains. There are the rapids. Oh, I have to portage around this waterfall, which of course was really cool and we all love doing that. Um, so it just, yeah, that made me think of your, your map discussion. Yeah, that was, well, I mean, again, I only ever had the that was that was a game that I played when I got the Ultima collection. Uh, so you know it was, um, it was not something I had the uh, the, the chance to explore directly. But uh, but you know that's it's interesting because you know that's kind of true of of a lot of the Ultima box content, um, and this even up as far as nine, like the entirety of the series more or less offered this. Um, you know. Everything that was included, the maps, the manuals, everything was built to, yeah, draw you into the narrative. And not only draw you into the narrative of the game, but also flesh out the larger lore of the land that you were entering into. Um, and almost always it did this marvelously. Right. What else do we got? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Ah, we were mentioning um, Katrina the Tank, and, you know, on a not entirely unrelated note, um, how about that magic axe in the game? <laughs> Love it and hate it. Yeah, in many ways it detracted from it, because it got to a point, sort of like the Chrysogram and Symphony of the Night, if anyone's familiar with that, the weapon is so glorious and so effective that it almost cheapens the game. It's almost like a, you've just enabled a, a cheat feature. Um, and it re- just really lessens the impact of what you're doing. Certainly makes the game easier. <laughs> but in a day before the internet, before everybody just knew that there was a magic axe in a tree in Jalem, finding it for the first time, because I did play 5 when it first came out on the Commodore, finding it for the first time was really one of the bigger, oh, okay, moments of, <laughs> of just the world exploration and interactivity. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, again, you know, something that definitely uh, we now think of as a hallmark of the Ultima games. Um, almost an analog, although the musket in Ultima 7 was nowhere near this overpowered, but it's almost an analog to that, right? Because, you know, there's like, I think, two muskets in the game and maybe a hundred bullets um, around the land. Although I think you can make more. I can't remember what you do to make more, but I think there's a way. But, you know, it's like uh, there there's some in the storeroom in Britain and then actually, funnily enough, around Jellum again. Um, if you go sailing or carpeting around the islands there, there's a hidden passageway in the mountains uh, and you walk through it and you find like this old pirate's hideout uh, and there's a musket and some more ammo in there. Uh, the magic axe had the effect on me as, as soon as I picked up Ultima 6, I immediately... You know, okay, where's the magic axe? Where's the, how can I make a magic axe? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, nothing quite so overpowered in Ultima 6 um, that I can think of. The halberd was kind of a, a wicked weapon to, to wield if you had that. Um, you could do a ton of damage with that. All right, well, let's um, move on here a little bit and talk about the gameplay of Ultima 5. So um, what are some of the different gameplay approaches that Ultima 5 allows for? Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you can just play it straight um, with, you know, a party. Uh, you can collect your, your, you know, the usual party that you, uh, of companions that we all know and love so well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and of course there's oh, the what? single, uh, which, you know, famously John Miles beat uh, Richard Garriott in that first playthrough <laughs> by doing that. Right. It's a quick way to get to level eight. Yeah, I suppose it would be. Um now, I forget, in, well, you start solo, so you just, yeah, you start solo in the game, so you don't have to recruit people, right? Well, you start, you start, you with, start Shamino with, and, with Shamino and Yolo at Yolo's Cottage, and Shamino is pretty okay. battered. Right. But you can tell them to, 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 to leave off and, you know, leave Yeah, you, alone, you can drop right? them off at the nearest inn, and I'm pretty sure there's one in you, so. Mm-hmm. See, again, like, I've got the Ultima 6 framework, where it's just, you know, if you actually tell Dupre, Shamino, and Yolo to leave the party, they're just like, uh, no... King's orders. Yeah, in so, five you can't solo that the game, party you... around entirely, but you, you do have yeah. to wait until you get to an inn to ditch anybody. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Whereas in six, to solo it, you have to murder your dearest friends. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, and um, <clears throat> of course, you know, and this was funny. I was, um, I don't know if you were online just at the time, but just before we started the broadcast, Don, I was talking about um, an article at Kotaku that might serve as a uh, template for a future podcast. 
Yes, uh, I was. Which was, you know, um, way okay. Yeah, you were there. So, um, you know, <laughs> the the concept of you know, um, in in Kotaku's sense, you know, they said really role play. So you know, like actually like play as your character in the world. Um, and is that what you meant here by themed gameplay? Well, that's that's one version of it. Um, I've definitely played through where you know, well, what would this knowing the personalities of the characters? Oh, what would they like? You know, maybe they wouldn't pick up this armor. They would stick with their leather and they pick up this weapon and uh, and influence the avatar to oh, let's go to this town next and that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing I meant by themed gameplay is. Sometimes I've decided I'm just going to have all mages. We're just going to be magic badasses and try and beat the game that way. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would kind of make it fun. Um, and linguistic, I suppose you're doing another sort of take on that, right? Because, you know, you're playing through the Ultimas um, as though it's the same character each time. So I've, you know, um, I mean, I recall that you uh, had a very unfortunate um saunter through you in <laughs> Ultima 3 was it Yes yes I had and a then when uh, you got to writing about Ultima I did a lot of my 4, grinding you just did a lot of my grinding in 3 by going on a rampage on the clerics and you and uh avoided it for quite a while when I started up uh Ultima 4 which was kind of difficult because they did that as a druid um but yeah that's that's um that's how I've been approaching my playthroughs on the blog, kind of, kind of keeping in mind, because I'm, fo- I'm trying to focus on the narrative as a whole, um, uh, for the blog. And, and as a result, I've kind of played through the games with that always in the back of my head, trying to make my decisions on, on where to go and how, how the character acts in regard to past actions and, um, how, how, how he's developed, quote unquote, as I made my way through the series. It would be interesting to see something like your playthrough, where you're actually trying to act as though the avatar, you know, and his party members, his friends, uh, would in fact act within the confines of the narrative. It'd be interesting to see something like that converted into a series, like a television series on HBO. You know, to actually watch that drama play out, that'd be pretty incredible. Ultimate. There you go. <laughs> Game of virtues. <laughs> yes. Ah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Either you win or you lie. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never played an ultimate game actually trying to role play, you know, the various characters, but uh, but you know, tangential to the gameplay, um, I'd like to get back to you know some of the actual mechanics of the game that I think at the time were just absolutely revolutionary that I'd never seen or heard of that other games had tried to implement. You know, as we mentioned before, we have the day-night cycles, we have the NPC schedules, uh, but for me, in many ways, and to a degree, Ultima was like this all the way from the very first one. Ultima was the first Grand Theft Auto, and that it was open world. Um, it didn't stop you from killing the good guys. You know, you could rob, steal, pillage, go wherever you wanted. It didn't really have a heavy hand as far as guiding you or limiting your movement. Um, and I'd never seen really the level of detail that they put into that philosoph- uh, philosophy uh, in other games. Uh, for example, I think the, the real crowning achievement as far as what was just fun in Ultima Five uh, was to go climb up, you know, t- on top of the castles 
um, and then walk amongst the crenellations and fire cannons. You could incite the guards to attack you. To follow you up, you could push the cannon, you know, just push it around the top of the castle and fire it and kill the guards without actually entering into combat proper with them and take care of them. I mean, it, it must have taken 15 years or, you know, plus until the Assassin's Creed series where you could do anything like fire cannons at people. So that was just absolutely amazing for, what, 1986, 1988, 1988. when it came out? Okay. game's two months older than I am. So the, just the detail level of its mechanics were incredible. Even today, they're still incredible. That was a good way to grind for equipment in Ultima 6 as well. Um, go to Trinzic and just reorient a couple of the cannons and fire them at the guards patrolling the entrances. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too, Golden Flame. Me too. <laughs> Ah, my goodness. Uh, all right, so what else do we talk... Oh, yeah, cheats. What sort of cheats, secrets, or exploitable bugs exist in the game? I'm trying to think here. Well, you know what? We don't even need to... Oh, is that you, Gridia? Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. We have microphone. So, <clears throat> reintroducing... Now, is it... Would it be Gridilla, or would Gridia be a bit more correct as a pronunciation there? It is Gradilla. All right. So we are joined by Gradilla Dragon as well. Uh, popped in a little bit earlier and then immediately went on a quest to uh, rid his microphone equipment of Shadow Lords. <laughs> I had to bring it back so. from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> from the underworld. In Mani Corp. Exactly. Wait, no, that's Create Food. No, that's uh, In Mani Lem. Oh, right. Imani Liam. That's right. Imani Corp would be yes. Ah, my goodness. I'm rusty on this stuff. All right. Cheating in Ultima 5. Um, well, our friends at the wiki have a, a few things they mention here. Um, <laughs> so, yes. Flip-flop? Uh, style swapping. Flip-flop. If you yelled flip-flop in uh, the Commodore version, I don't know if it was in any of the others, but if you yelled flip-flop, hmm. it mirror-imaged the screen vertically. Everything was upside down. Oh, really? Down. That's uh yep. Made no thing. change in the actual gameplay or anything. It was just there. I don't know. It would do the little earthquake oh, okay. effect, and then it would swap everything. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, they don't list that under the cheats. Um <clears throat> But they, there are a few Commodore 64 specific cheats, um, like how to create more reagents using, uh, oh wow, this is fine. If you have between 11 and 15 of some reagents, and then mix a spell using only those reagents, and mix 16 of the spell, because I guess you could specify quantity, um, you should get 16 of the spell and 90 plus of each of the reagents. <laughs> clearly a math bug there. Man, I wish I'd known that one. Yeah. Um, in the pub in Empath Abbey, uh, the, evidently the other people's stuff tag is not attached to most of the provisions there. Um, and then worse, you can climb up and down the ladder, uh, to cause the food to reappear. So you can basically just spam the Empath Abbey pub, and this in the Commodore 64 version only evidently, uh, to get tons and tons of food. Which would be pretty valuable in the game because, you know, I mean, <clears throat> this was, this was Doug's playthrough of Lazarus, but, you know, if you recall, um, Doug the Eagle Dragon's attempt to play through Ultima 5 Lazarus, uh, 
he basically cast food as, you know, this horrible narcotic that was just everybody in Britannia was addicted to, and um, <clears throat> the side effects of going cold turkey were sudden and immediate painful <laughs> death. <laughs> so it was... Uh, yeah, I, I am. I am actually genuinely glad that the food mechanic was was lessened in some of the Ultimas. It's back in a little bit of a way in Ultima Seven, and I forget how annoying the party can be when they start getting hungry. But uh, yeah, just briefly back to some of the uh, improvements uh, from previous Ultimas. One of the things that was always just a terrible grind and concern that was absolutely no fun in earlier Ultimas was trying to manage food. You're always running out of food. To a degree, that was replaced by managing torches in Ultima Five when you went to the underworld. Because uh, if, if you couldn't True. see if you ran out of torches down there, it was pretty much game over. But uh, it was so much easier to get food because, unlike in the previous ones, when you attacked enemies, you would get so much more loot. So you were always getting stuff, even stuff you didn't need, you could sell. Um, so having gold to buy basics like food was never really a problem in Five, or it had always been before. I mean, again, it was a surprise to me because, you know, I came from six where, you know, food was important to have for the campfires at the end of the day. I think it impacted how much you healed when you rested. Um, but, you know, it was never a thing where, like, you know, you need it constantly just to navigate Britannia. You know, if your party went hungry one night, it wasn't the end of the world. Um, all right. Ah, moving on. Uh, what are some of the more mysterious aspects of Ultima Five? And we've got... Um, Two here. One is the Ankh, and the other one is the Om of Turning. Uh, amulet. I hope I have that right. A oh, Amulet of Turning, of course. I'm going to write that out right now. What do they do? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. The Ankh must do something, because you can get a second one. Well, I don't know. I mean, the Ankh in Ultima Six was purely decorative. I mean, a darn thing. It could well be. I mean, you know, that was the other thing, in that not everything in Ultima necessarily had a purpose, right? That's what I thought, but if you dig down in the temple in Coves, in Cove, you can actually unearth a second Ankh, so I thought, well, it must be useful in some way. Hmm, maybe. I I honestly can't think of what the use is. I mean, like I say, there's, it's uh, the Ankh in Ultima 6, it's a rare item, it's what you start with, um, I believe. I think you have the only one. I don't know if there's a second one to be found anywhere. Um, and it's purely decorative as a necklace. It does nothing. Who here is actually... Tonics and pants. <laughs> <laughs> Who here is actually defeated or won Ultima Five? Because I got reasonably close. Um, okay, Adam, uh, did the Ankh, in fact, have anything to do with some of the later mechanics as far as uh, what items do I need to have equipped in order to progress the uh, you know, end-game mechanics? In fact, you have to take off the Ankh to put on Lord British's amulet to progress. Take hmm. that how you will. Hmm. But you needed Lord British's amulet to find Doom at the very end. It may have been there simply to represent uh, perhaps the physical Ankh that you received in Ultima Five, Just something the Avatar would naturally wear. Well, the Ankh became the symbol of the Avatar. And it's interesting that, you know, the Ankh is one of the few possessions that actually bridges... Um, that, that is actually able to move with the player between Britannia and Earth. <clears throat> uh, you know, like, because the, the understanding, at least in 5 and 6, is that it's something you bring with you, right? Like, it, it's like the one possession that actually 
also comes through. Well, the it moon also gate comes up again in Ultima Four. That's that's what first comes through the Moon Gate, along with the Book of History and the Book of Magic in the opening sequence. And it's also the only thing you bring back with you in the ending sequence. Except except for your clothes. Well, yeah, of course. Well, it'll be like the Terminator. Every every time the Avatar goes through the Moon Gate, he lightning <laughs> flies around him and he's buck naked. Well, so that's the Jim Cameron remake, then, is what we're going for there. Okay. I'm pretty sure somebody's <laughs> written that fanfic, but I haven't read it. <laughs> uh, rule 34. <laughs> Darn you, Rule 34. Okay. Um, well, we're coming up on the hour mark, so um, let's just turn the discussion over to... And we've kind of touched on this a little bit here and there already, but let's turn the discussion over to the legacy of Ultima Five. Um, and we've talked about this one a little bit, but you know, the, the one good question is how did Ultima five contribute to the, the larger, oh boy, do I have a lot to say on that? (laughs) Um, well, uh, let's see, where do I start? Well, for one thing, this is the first game that really makes a big deal of runic. Um, uh, they come up in Ultima four as the visions, uh, that you get from enlightenment at the shrines, but that's pretty much all you see of it. Whereas in Ultima V, Runic is everywhere. Pretty much all the uh, street signs are in Runic, all the gravestones are in Runic. In fact, I laughed for about a solid minute when I found one in Sutex, uh, out by Sutex's place that reads, uh, Here Lies Richard, Buried Alive, Trying to Finish Ultima V. Um, but <laughs> it also kind of establishes some thematic elements that are prevalent through the rest of the series. Um, like, for one thing, it's it's the middle volume of the Age of Enlightenment trilogy, and the middle volume is always when things take a turn for the darker. And it definitely does in Ultima Five, and it kind of shows the need for nuance of the virtues, that um, it's not always something starkly black and white, it's not always something easy to interpret in every situation, um, which is kind of what Five is about and Six builds on. Um in the same sense, it kind of establishes the Avatar's role in Britannia, because Lord British, who is presumably the most powerful one in Britannia itself, can't rescue himself. You've got to go in and get him out of there. It's you who has to solve the problem, which is the case in 6, the case in 7, and is kind of what 9 goes against, um, ultimately. Uh, it's it's Britannia standing up for itself without the Avatar. Um Last thing I can think of is um, is um, the continuing of the pattern that you don't necessarily solve the problem by beating the big bad like you did in the first three games. There is no big bad in Ultima Four. Um, you take you um, solve Ultima Six using the diplomatic route, and Ultima Five you defeat the Shadow Lords. But it's Lord British who ultimately deals with Blackthorn, who is kind of felt to be the other overarching presence besides the uh, the Shadow Lords themselves. Yeah, very true. And I, I mean, that is actually kind of largely true of the uh, of all three of the, the Age of Enlightenment games, is the fact that, you know, they're not um, <clears throat> boss battle type games, really, by any means. I mean, sure, the Shadow Lords, they're kind of pains in the butt <laughs> to defeat. Um, <clears throat> but you don't... You're right. I mean, when you come to the actual end of the game, it's not like, you know, you have to fight Blackthorn and defeat him. It's, you know, it's you, you, you free Lord British, and that's where the solution to that particular problem comes from. Um, so, 
Uh, and then, of course, I mean, yeah, the uh, <clears throat> it's it's actually kind of funny, you know, you mentioned Ultimate Nine, because in some of the various little discards and uh, bits and pieces of the plot documents, like, I think in at one point, you know, the... Surgorn Dragon knows this one really, really well, and I can never really remember it, but there was always supposed to be, like, some tie between the Shadow Lords and the Guardian as well. Um, obviously, it was never explored in the final plot, but... <clears throat> but yeah, I guess I guess Ultima Five kind of very quickly sort of sets you into the. Uh... <laughs> okay, here's how it's going to be for now. Oh, and now everything changes. You know, you go right from Ultima Four's establishment of so much of what Britannia is and what the virtues are, and then Ultima Five just like immediately flips the table over. Um, and then the other Ultima games that kind of follow on interact with the virtues to greater or lesser degrees. Um, from there. Now, here's another one. Um, are there any games that seem, or maybe very obviously are, inspired by Ultima Five? Tough Dark question. <laughs> All right. Okay. We'll go with that. <laughs> the Adventure Construction set that came out for Apple and Commodore back at the time was pretty much literally just here, build in Ultima Four slash Five. Really. Yeah, and then and has been remade more modernly uh, as the Adventure Construction Kit. Yeah, they also had that for DOS. I actually played with that quite a bit, and you're right. It was basically like you were building an Ultima game. Um, but I think in many ways, you know, the influences of Ultima Five aren't really haven't haven't really begun to be felt until more recently. Um, you know, now with the the weakening importance of major publishers. Um, and you know corporate financial backing of projects um, instead of them being risk averse you know and coming out with the next call of duty now a lot of games have a different venue where they can uh, self-fund or crowdfund through indiegogo or kickstarter and you're seeing a lot of projects uh, you know that harken back to the older days where you do see a lot of uh, experimental mechanics like ultima 5 had things that a normal developer wouldn't waste their time doing um, because they don't see it as is necessary to making money. Um, so, like Crowfall, um, Underworld Descendant, um, all these new Ultima likes uh, that are coming out now, I think, are really striving for the spirit of the mechanics that we saw in Ultima 5. Yeah, I'm not sure, like, for, for modern games, it's really hard to say anything from the last, you know, decade and a half. This was inspired by Ultima Five. Not direct, directly, you know, perhaps. Any, right. Any, mm-hmm. any game like Skyrim. Obviously, you can trace its descent back to Ultima, but not so much to a specific Ultima. Right. You know. True. The stuff that it's got introduced between Five and Seven, it harvested from. But as far as saying like what games were specifically influenced by Ultima Five itself, there were a bunch of like you know C list. Let's make a tile-based <laughs> game that looks like Ultima and possibly just steals their graphics published by who knows. I don't even know what most of them are. I just every now and then somebody finds another one and posts about it to the Facebook group. Yeah, um, that's very true. I don't know but, that uh, I don't know that any of these developers would specifically credit Ultima Five as an inspiration for their design decisions or their mechanics. But Ultima Five for me was really uh, the foundation for those type of simulation mechanics where so much attention was paid to something that most developers or designers would consider an unnecessary detail, um, a toy, uh, basically. 
So I think it really started with Ultima 5, and then of course it continued all the way up to Ultima 7. And um, so it was, the, it was the first for me that really tried to go there. I mean, I guess, <laughs> and, and I'm only mentioning this because, you know, um, <clears throat> Ian Tibby, Ian Fraser, um, you know, obviously was the project lead for Ultima 5. Lazarus obviously thinks very highly of Ultima 5. And um, the only thing I can even think of in terms of, like, modern AAA-type games is, you know, and I'm going to mention Reckoning again, so for those <laughs> of you who are playing that particular drinking game, take a shot. Um, but, you know, there's a little bit of that thematic in Reckoning of, you know, you have this, throughout most of the narrative, you're told that, you know, the character of Gadflow, who's the king of the Winter Fae, um, has gone mad. He's the Mad King, and he, by his own design, has unleashed the Winter Fae and, and the terror and slaughter that they bring on to the land, the land of Amalur. Close your ears if you don't like spoilers. Um, what you find at the very end of the game is that this is not the case. There is a different entity... Um, <clears throat> who has in fact gotten complete hold of Gadflow's mind and is essentially just using him as a puppet to visit this horrible slaughter on the land in advance of her own um, arrival into it. So um, I don't know if Ian had any say into that part of the plot. I mean, I know a lot of it was written by Ari Salvatore, but <clears throat> he did sneak the occasional bit of Another yeah. game that kind of plot, like for example, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. You fight Richter Belmont, and he's being mind controlled, and he is working mm. for um, resurrecting Dracula. And then you have to figure out and defeat the the one controlling him, which is the a priest, Priest Shaft, I think is the name. Okay, I'm totally unfamiliar with Castlevania. Well, what, what are the, one of the one of the things about Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which on the surface you would think was completely unrelated to Ultimate, actually, uh, it turns the tables. Uh, traditionally, you're Richter Belmont or Vampire Hunter, a human trying to kill, you know, Dracula, the vampires. In Symphony of the Night, you're actually Dracula's son, a hybrid human vampire, who is in fact trying to stop, if not kill, his father. Um, similar to how in Ultima Five the tables are turned. Suddenly, the Avatar, who was previously a hero, you know, celebrated, um, is now an outlaw. You know, and you know the system that supported him before has now turned against him, including some of the citizens of the game. So, in, in that respect, I think it's actually an interesting analogy. By the way, if anyone has not played Symphony of the Night, um, that arguably is the finest platformer RPG hybrid ever made. Just an excellent game in every way. And uh, you should not die without having played it. <laughs> Duly noted, I'll find a system that supports it. From the Journal of the Avatar, from the period of history known as the Warriors of Destiny. Day 24 of the 8th month, 189th year of the Britannian calendar. 
three days. That was how long it had been since we'd last seen the sun. It half-blinded us as we emerged from the prison caverns of wrong and made us trip and stumble over the rocky coast of Lost Hope Bay. Yet even so, we were glad for its presence. The aches of the travel-weary, the wounds of battle, they can be soothed by rest or by magic. But there is no balm for the palpably oppressive gloom of the underworld, except to escape from it. And between Dupre sliding halfway down an underground mountain amid the cacophony of the rockfall clanging against his armor, and a hallway of explosive traps culminating in a fight with four demons, that had been no easy task. Yet escape we had, with the shard of hatred nestled in my pack, and it was a relief. The six of us each found a perch, taking a moment to catch our breath now that we were back on the surface. The lapping of the waves against the rocks, the steady rise and fall, was soothing. The only sounds of running water in the underworld were the roars of waterfalls, echoing off the cavern walls. The light fluttering of wings had me tense for a moment, until I heard the call that accompanied it, and relaxed, reminding myself the sound no longer meant the approach of yet another pack of mongbats and the inevitable fight they brought with them, but that of harmless gulls or perhaps even an albatross. Compared to the dank and dismal place we had just come out of, this was pure tranquility. But as much as I wanted to sit and savor the scenery, there was still work to be done, and my desire to see it finished won out. Reluctantly, I rose. We've still a job to do, I told the others. We make for the Abbey. And one by one, they rose as well, without complaint. Long as it was, the walk through the deep forest was refreshing in a way. Though the thick canopy filtered the sunlight, it was still brighter than the torches we were forced to make use of in the underworld. And better still, instead of seeing little more than the inky black beyond the glow of the torch, here in the forest, we were treated to a display of nearly every shade of green imaginable. Shamina was certainly in better spirits because of it, humming a jaunty, though slightly off-key, tune as we walked. Yolo only just managed to hold back a grimace, though not well enough to keep from amusing Yana in the process. The snap of twigs beneath our boots, the twitter of the sparrows in the trees, the rustle of the leaves as a squirrel darted along a branch, they were far more comfortable noises than the reverberations of the caverns. Still, as we neared the keep, my unease grew bit by bit. I remembered well the encounters I had in the Lyceum and Serpent's Hold. How could I possibly forget them? The whispered lies with just enough truth to make them believable that filled my head in Faulinay's presence. The crippling fear that came from Nosventor's approach. That fear that had come far too close to overtaking me. Though the Shadow Lords could be banished and defeated, it was not so easy to do the same with the vices they stood for. At least this one would be the last. The towering trees thinned eventually, traded for the crenellated stone towers of Empath Abbey. We wound our way around the greenery and merrily bubbling marble fountains of the courtyard through the expansive archway on its eastern side. Ascending the stairwell there, we walked down the wide, inviting hallways until we arrived at the alcove where the flame of love was kept. Barbara, the flame's keeper, curtsied as we entered, and I bowed slightly in return. Clear the room, if you would, I told her, and I think it would be best if you made sure none enter until we emerge again. If Lord Michael spoke the truth, 
then those living in the keep had never felt the effects a Shadow Lord could have on their mind when encountered face to face. I wanted to keep it that way if I was able. Barbara asked no questions on the matter, just curtsied once more, replying, As my lord requests. She walked out of the room, shutting the solid oaken door behind her, and that was that. I turned to the flame, watching it crackle and dance, not the cool blue of the flame of truth, nor the brilliant red of the flame of courage, but a soft, pleasing yellow. Then I cast my gaze upward. The room, unlike the others, was left open to the air, and I wondered briefly what might happen if it rained. I shook the thought from my mind, taking out the shard. This was no time to get distracted by idle musings. I took a few breaths to steady myself, then called out clear and loud, Astaroth! The name rent the air, echoing off the walls before the darkness descended, and I'm still not certain I didn't hear a thunderclap, despite a cloudless sky. The shadows deepened, thickened, drew themselves together into the form of the Shadow Lord I had just named, glowing red eyes deep in a face hidden by a cowl, and I was no longer in the abbey. Instead, I was thrown into the midst of vivid memory. A father's whimpers, begging for mercy from anyone who passed by, slammed into the stocks for simply not giving enough to the poor, and that mercy not for himself, but for his child, who shared the same fate for neglecting to turn in his own father. A man rattling his chains behind bars, cruelly imprisoned, desperate for news of the boy he'd been torn away from, hope fading with each passing day. Blackthorn's dungeons, catching glimpses of the instruments of torture kept there, the frenzied cries of their victims thrashing against the unforgiving iron restraints still hanging in the air. Shamino, glowing bolt driven deep into his chest, struggling for each raspy breath even as they intertwined with barely suppressed groans of pain, not knowing whether they were his last... The faces of dozens upon dozens injured in some way or another by what the shadow before me had wrought. And my hatred burned. An absolutely murderous scream tore from my throat, piercing the illusion. And I lunged, wanting to rip, to tear, to destroy, to kill. Only to find my shoulders gripped by Dupre on one side and Yolo on the other, restraining me. And my axe in one hand. Hadn't recalled it being there before. Past grievances drifted through my head, magnified into full out rage, tempting me to fight against my own companions, that seething hate still bubbling beneath the surface, demanding I turn it on those who would dare hold me back. Swallowing hard, and with great effort, I shoved those temptations aside, casting the shard where it clattered into the brazier. The flame burned brighter, grew larger and the calm, steady glow became a full-out blaze, roaring as it caught the Shadow Lord's cloak, consuming Astaroth, who protested the inevitable with an unearthly shriek that splintered the clashing light and darkness into a thousand pieces. And then it was silent. Nobody breathed for the space of a few beats. And then John's voice. It is done, then. I turned to face him, and nodded once, enough of a pause to steady my own voice. It is done.
If you want to join the Ultima Dragons, you can do so at udic.org, where at you can choose your very own dragon name. You can also find the Ultima Dragons on Facebook. We have a Facebook group there. And you can follow at Ultima Dragons on Twitter or join them on Discord. And if you're feeling really old school, you can even fire up a Telnet client and check out the Wearmount. Hit up the show notes for links to all of these. If you want to participate more directly in the podcast, you can send us an email. Or if you're feeling a little bit braver, leave us a voice message in one of three places, the podcast website, our Facebook page, or on anchor.fm. And you're also welcome to join us on our Discord server to chat with us, to lurk, or even contribute to podcast recordings when they happen. And again, links in the show notes. If you'd like to support Spam 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 Humbug, you can do so at patreon.com slash ultimacodex, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to episodes the day before they go live to the general public. You'll also get access to behind-the-scenes audio when we have some to share, and possibly other interesting content. But we also welcome your moral support. You can like the Ultima series on Facebook, follow at Ultima Codex on Twitter, or leave the podcast a review on iTunes. And you're also welcome to share our episodes with your friends and social media circles. Spam 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 Humbug is a production of the Ultima Codex. You can find show notes online at spamspamspamhumbug.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be virtuous. Virtuous.